Well, if you would, this morning, take your Bibles and open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. And um, we're in this series called Generous. <clears throat> Generous is where we are. And uh, we're talking about money. We're talking about money unashamedly. Um, last week, I uh, shared with you the illustration of me hoarding my chips and salsa and treating my family with uh, um, less than Christ-like attitude over my chips and salsa, well, two things happened. One, last Sunday, uh, someone sent me a text message, and they they included a picture of the menu where they went for lunch. Guess where they went for lunch? To the Mexican restaurant to get chips and salsa. So I'm glad that I can inspire you for what you want to do for lunch. Hopefully we're going to do more than that in, in the next 30 or 40 minutes. But a second thing happened is this morning, someone brought me a bag and said, I've got a gift for you. And in that bag was chips and salsa. And I brought it into the worship center and I set it over there on the front row. And Wallace said, you set that in the wrong place. So what do you mean? He said, I love chips and salsa. So, Wallace, I've got my eye on you. Not afraid to come down off the platform. All right. So but uh, it's good. Good to be here with you. Uh, Before I get in, let me just draw attention to it. We will have the gathering or homecoming service coming up on the 18th on that day. Last week, Steve was Steve Johnson was gracious enough to share with us, give us a big picture of where we are financially and and where we we actually do have a a deficit or what we've spent to to do what we believe God's calling us to do uh, has been more than what we've actually brought in through the year. And there is a deficit. So on the 18th, I just want you to be praying toward what God would have you to give. We're going to collect a special offering that day to make up that, that deficit. We don't do that very often. This is not like something that we, we do very often. Uh, I told you at the beginning of this series, this is the first time in two years since I've been here that I've ever talked about money. But I can't shy away from talking about money with you because money is a huge part of your life. And there is no part of your life or my life that is not worth using for the glory of God. And so I want you to get this. I don't want to I don't want to rob you of what Scripture says, what Christ taught specifically about the use of money. And so that's why we're doing this. We'll continue this this week and then finish up the series next week and then collect that offering on the morning of the 18th. So just be praying toward that. Let me review before I read the text. Two weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Matthew chapter six. We talked about we Jesus talked about uh, that. All of us are burying treasure somewhere. We're burying treasure in one of two places. Either we're burying treasure here on earth in earthly things, using money and possessions to make much of us. But those things won't last or we are burying treasure in heaven, using earthly money and possessions to make much of God while we're here, knowing that those are the only things that will last. Okay, that was two weeks ago, and we talked about that regard, where, we're measure, where we're burying our treasure really reveals our spiritual condition before God. X marks the spot. If we're burying treasure in heaven, it's testimony to the fact that we have been changed by the gospel. But if we're simply living for this world, it is evidence that the gospel has never truly captured us. 
And we've never been changed by the gospel. So last week, then we looked at a passage in Matthew, chapter 25, uh, where Jesus again taught and he taught about the, the stewards, the uh, the one that was given five, the one that was given two and the one that was given the one. And uh, we need to see ourselves. We talked about this last week, not as owners, but as managers or stewards of what God owns. We manage it doing what he would want done with what he entrusts to us, whether it's a lot or little. And God will one day, we, we talked about, that just as the master in that story will come again and settle the accounts, God will also come again one day and settle the accounts. Whatever he entrusts to you and to me in whatever amount of time we're given, I know we're talking about this on the way to, to uh, maybe getting ready this morning, um, we may have 70, 80 years. We're not guaranteed that. We may have a little more, may have... Less than that, may have drastically less than that. But whatever we're entrusted with on this earth, there will be a reckoning for it. Not in order to justify us or make us righteous before God, but those who have been made righteous through the works of Christ, we still will be accountable for what he entrusts to us. And so we want you to be aware of that. So with that being said, we need to learn to be generous. We need to learn to be generous with what God entrusts, what he allows to come into our lives. Money, possessions, all of the things of this world. There's nothing wrong with having things, but it's when we hoard those things and we use them to make much of ourselves rather than using them to make much of God. So we need to learn to be generous. But how? How? How do, how do we do that? Well, let's take a look this morning at our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Let's pray together. God, I pray you would take this passage before us, God, that you would open it up and show us what's here. God, that your spirit would be our teacher and God, that we would respond in obedience for your glory. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, before we can really understand this passage, I need to give you a little background. We talked in the membership class this morning about that. It's hard to take just a short passage of scripture like these three verses. And just understand all that they mean unless we look at the larger story of what's going on around it. You do understand that the Bible was written in real times with real people doing real life. And so I want you to understand maybe a little bit of what was going on. When Paul here writes in 2 Corinthians to these uh, to the Corinthians, encouraging them to be generous He is writing about the generosity of the Macedonians in their giving of an offering for the believers in Jerusalem. There was severe famine. There was severe poverty in Jerusalem. I mean, the people were just impoverished, really almost beyond what could be helped. But these Macedonians who were already poor themselves, they gave out of their poverty to meet the needs of these Jerusalem. Let me give you just a little background. Uh, why was Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, so poor? 
You know, I've served in a couple churches where it was just poor. You know, there was, was virtually no affluence in the church whatsoever, and the people were just poor. No one had anything. I've heard Matt Chandler talk about, um, and, and J.D. Greer, and some of these that start up these, these upstart churches, that when they start, a lot of the people they're reaching are college students, which have no money. J.D. Greer, actually, at the end of a, of a service one day, they took their offering, and among the coins where, where college students empty out their, their change jars, there was also a chicken biscuit from McDonald's in the offering plate uh, because that's all they had. The college student just came and said, I'll give what I have and just put the chicken biscuit in the offering. Well, I've served in churches that were similar to that. Poor. Just didn't have a lot. Well, Jerusalem is probably the poorest of all. And let me give you a few reasons why. The Jerusalem church was the first church. It was born on uh, the day of Pentecost, where Peter preaches the sermon, and the Bible says that 3,000 people came to know Christ that day. 3,000 people instantly. Jesus has died. Jesus has been buried. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. And now the message is preached, and 3,000 people are all of a sudden believers and church members. They are church members at the church of Jerusalem. 3,000. That's probably not counting women and children. There's probably more like six, seven, eight thousand people here in the beginning. Then later on, just a couple chapters later in Acts, Acts 4 says that 5,000 came to know the Lord. This means that if you add all everyone in together, there's probably in its infancy around 20 to 25,000 people in this church in Jerusalem. There's it's a holiday weekend. There's a lot of us gone this morning. There may be 150 of us in here. Imagine if we had to have church, if we had to care for, if we had to shepherd 20, 25,000 people tomorrow. It's large. It's huge. They all come under the care of the church. Many in that early church, if you'll remember, they had traveled. They had traveled from all the outlying areas to come to Jerusalem for this festival. So when they came, heard the gospel, were converted, they just stayed. They didn't leave. They didn't go back home because, number one, they didn't have anything to go home to. Many of them, there was, well, all of them, there was no other church. You and I, if we decide, hey, this is not the church for us, there's plenty of options around for us. There's plenty of options. I mean, we, we could go, you know, just a square mile around us. That would be a radius, not a square. But anyway, we could go just out a mile. Sorry, random thought just flew right through my head. Had to come out. We could do, and we could find many, many churches that we could attend. But for them, when they were converted, this changed everything. There was no going back. There was no going back to Judaism. There was no going back to their Gentile gods, because their life had been changed by the gospel, and there was only one church in the world. And it was in Jerusalem. Not only that, but for many of these who had traveled in, because they had converted and came to know Christ, they had nothing to go home to. They were disowned. They were excommunicated. They were shunned and kicked out. So they had virtually nothing to go home to. They had, many of them lost their jobs because of them converting to Christ. On top of that, then there's also uh, the fact that the Romans here in Jerusalem had caused severe poverty already in Jerusalem. The Romans had 
taxed the citizens of Jerusalem. You remember the story. The Romans would even hire fellow Jews to be tax collectors to extort the money that that they were earning for the building of the great city of Rome. And so there's this extreme poverty here. Rome is persecuting these early Christians. And it's just extremely poor. And the word gets back to the Macedonians. In fact, the word first comes to the Corinthians. The word first comes, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let me see if I can find the verse real quick. I should have had that marked. Watch, I won't be able to find it. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. That would be easy to find. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. See, this, this news of Jerusalem and its poverty had come first to the Corinthians. They had been motivated to give, but they had sat on that. But the news of them being motivated to give to the, the church in Jerusalem had gotten to the church in the churches in Macedonia. Macedonia, even in their extreme poverty, says, we want to give also. Paul, you have to let us give. And they give also to this. And this is what Paul is talking about here is this generosity of the Macedonians for these poor Jewish Christians. Let me show you three things this morning out of this text. Three things quickly that I want you to see that really are maybe new to you or maybe sort of paradigm shifting for you. First of all, generosity doesn't start where you think. Generosity doesn't start where you think that it might. In verse 1 of chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Paul is going to eventually get to the actual gift that the Macedonians gave. Hang with me. I know this is a lot this morning. Hang with me. He's going to eventually get to their gift. But before he gets to their gift, he wants to point out the motivation for their gift. He doesn't want to jump just to the gift. He wants you to see why they gave. He knows that their gift is just the manifestation of something else. What is he getting at? Paul gives us the answer in the very first verse when he says, Brothers, we want you to know not about the gift itself, but about the grace of God. The grace of God that has been given. Paul here is saying that generosity doesn't start where you think it does. We live in a world, in a culture that likes to think of themselves as being generous, don't we? The reality is the generosity of this world without the grace of God is selfishness. The generosity of this world outside of the grace of God is selfishness. Back when uh, any NBA fans in the room. See, I'm not a big NBA fan, but the Dallas Mavericks won it all this year. And uh, after they won it all. Uh, the news came out that Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, went out and he celebrated that night. He celebrated in, in a club in Miami with the team. It was extravagant. His tab, he picked up the tab that night. His tab at this bar was 
$110,000. That's no two for 20 at Applebee's. You know, that's that's a little more, right? See, now you're going to want Applebee's. I don't want any text messages or pictures from Applebee's today. But Mark Cuban goes out, picks up the tabs, celebrating $110,000. But this is what made the news. He left a $20,000 tip. $20,000 tip. That made the news. The writers began to write about the generosity of Mark Cuban. But I'd like to say to you, was it really generous? Was it really generous? The reality is the world's generosity outside of Christ is still selfishness. What's $20,000 to Cuban? Nothing. I mean, he's worth, I don't know how much, one of the richest men in the world. I mean, he he virtually, I mean, $20,000 to him is like a couple bucks to me. So what's $20,000 to him? And then I'd like to also say, and this is not bash Mark Cuban day, but I'd like to also say, was his gift really about understanding what the wait service, the waiters and waitresses had to really go through? Or was it really about him and this celebration and his ego? You see, I think this world, whether it's a $20,000 tip or whether it's throwing the change into the Salvation Army kettle, As you walk out of Walmart, all of it for us is really selfishness. It's all rooted in us. And and the reality is the Salvation Army and the March of Dimes and all those people, they know that. That's why they that's why they position their people where they position them. That bell that you hear that just rings over and over and that guy standing positioned perfectly in between the two doors He knows that for some people, it's too hard for them to walk past him. So they would feel guilty if they didn't, and so they'll throw something in there. So it's really rooted in them feeling well. The generosity of this world outside of Christ is really nothing but selfishness. I mean, think about it. We live in luxury. We live in luxury compared to the rest of the world, and we call it generous when we Pitch some money in the Salvation Army kettle or or buy one of the little stickers that hangs up for the marching dimes. We call that generous. But in reality, then we go back home and we put all of our stuff into our castles that are part of our kingdom. We live in luxury while there are children, thousands of children dying every single day in other parts of the world of treatable, preventable diseases like diarrhea. We hoard ourselves off. We put up fences and we shield ourselves from looking at that or thinking about that. And we live for ourselves. I thought about this as I was studying this. Why? If if that's not true, then why does the media and everyone else freak out when someone who is successful in the world's eyes decides to leave it all to go and serve on the foreign mission field? When rumors of Tim Tebow maybe foregoing the NFL to go to the mission field, when those began to surface, people called Tim Tebow crazy. That's ridiculous. Why? Because they don't know generosity that comes from the grace of God. But if your life has been changed 
by the grace of God, that grace lavished on you will then motivate you to go and be generous in ways that are so much more than tossing change into a kettle. I got an email this week from uh, Steve Fisher, who had had a uh, conversation with uh, with a friend of his, a, a former pastor when they lived in North Carolina. Um, and I, I asked him if I could read this to you, share this with you. It's I thought it fit so well. So let me just read you his email. Steve Fisher. He says, I had lunch with a pastor friend of mine Tuesday who just turned 80. And he works part time, 15 hours per week at First Pres, uh, First Presbyterian Church in Greenville. His name is George Moore. Beth and I first were married. We lived in Marshall, North Carolina, and he was our pastor. We've been friends ever since, almost 36 years. Over his pastorate, God has called George and his wife to Colorado, Wisconsin, Indiana, back to Colorado, and then to Greenville, South Carolina. When they left Marshall, North Carolina in 1985, they didn't know it then, but they would not live near their grown children or grandchildren for almost 20 years. Every church they were sent to except First Presbyterian had serious issues and was hurting. God used George and his wife, Moselle, to love the people, speak the truth in love, and allow God to bring about healing and growth. When they were called to Greenville seven years ago, it was, it was a part-time job within an hour's drive of their children, and they believed that they were going to be called here to retire, enjoy being on the staff of a wonderful church, and ultimately fu- fully retire in the beautiful upstate South Carolina. He was planning to phase out at First Pres by the end of the year. And three weeks ago, he got a call from a church in Douglas, Wyoming. Through a unique connection to Greenville, one of the elders had heard about this pastor that God had used to bring about healing in churches that were in desperate need of wise, godly leadership. The elder told George that his church was in serious trouble, that Satan had used a few key people to cripple their ministry and nearly destroy the church. Over the last six years, they had gone from a vibrant fellowship of around 325 members to barely 60 today. He told George that the elders had been praying that God would direct them to the person that he had chosen and that they believed that George was God's man for the job. And George told them that he had just turned 80, had open heart surgery three years ago and did not have the energy he once had. And he really did not think he was the person for the job. The truth is that he really didn't want to go. They asked if they could fly he and his wife to Douglas, Wyoming, to at least meet with the elders, see the church and pray for God's leadership. They agreed and went. After returning from the visit, they struggled for a week with with the decision. He told me Tuesday that he had signed a two-year contract with the church as their interim pastor. Set aside are the plans to enjoy the nicest house they have ever lived in and the only house they have ever owned. Gone is the beautiful yard that he and Moselle have worked so hard to make a place of relaxing enjoyment. Gone are the weekly visits with the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Gone are the short work hours with a church where his, where his job had nothing to do with resolving conflict. And he and Moselle were deeply loved and appreciated. The hardest part of all is that they were leaving the opportunity to, be, to spend time with their middle daughter, Julia, who at 56 years old is struggling with cancer. Short of a miracle, Julia will not live to see 57. Those are the heartbreakers. But when George told me, he said tearfully, with all that we are leaving, what an honor it is to not only be available for God, but to know that God is still willing to use us. Moselle is willing, like George, but 
she, she loves it here. She loves her family. She loves her church. She worries about her daughter. But she and George love God more. And Steve ends it with, by quoting Hebrews eleven sixteen, where he says, They were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. Now, when I read that, my heart broke for, for George and his wife. I thought, you know, 80 years old, you know, not having been able to live around children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I mean, I, I would say, George... Just stay in Greenville. At 80 years old, he's never gotten past the grace of God. He's never got beyond it. And at 80 years old, he says, I don't know what we'll do, but what a privilege it is that God would still use me. How could I say no when I have been given so much? That kind of thing doesn't make sense in the world's eyes because the world's generosity outside of the grace of Christ is selfishness. But when the grace of God in Christ Jesus tears down your life and builds it again, generosity takes on a whole new meaning. Generosity doesn't start where you think. It only really begins when God lavishes His generosity on you by sending His Son to die in your place, causing you to be born again, calling you and enabling you to trust Him, forgiving you, giving you Christ's righteousness, adopting you as a son and heir, sending the Holy Spirit to live in you and preparing a home for you to live with Him forever. What is What are the things of this world compared to that? Generosity does not start where you think it does. It starts with the grace of God. And today, if you are here and you find yourself being anything but generous, I would say to you as boldly and as lovingly as I possibly can, it may be that you've never experienced the grace of God. And today, you may need to... Come to God, admitting that you are a sinner in rebellion against Him, deserving His wrath. And you may need to turn away from your sin by faith and trust Christ alone by faith and be saved so that you might receive the greatest generosity you would ever receive in this life or the next. Secondly, Generosity flourishes where you think that it wouldn't. Generosity flourishes where, the, where you think that it wouldn't. In verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We're not going to get to the actual gift yet. You think, well, he's gotten past the, the motivation for the gift. Now we'll get to the gift. Not yet. Because Paul not only wants you to see their motivation, but he wants you to see their circumstance. That's why he says, in a severe test of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their severe poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You see, it's, it's easy when things are easy. 
to be generous. But only the grace of God can cause us to be generous, even in a severe test of affliction. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, like Jerusalem, the Macedonians were not that much different. They also were very poor. They also were a province of Rome. They also had all of their natural resources mined by them, but taken from them by Rome. What Rome didn't take in their resources, he took from them in taxes. Rome takes it away. Not only that, but they, like the the Jews, once they converted to Christ, they were leaving the religion of their families. Many of them were excommunicated and they also lost jobs. You see, Macedonia is northern Greece. There are three churches there. The church of Philippi, the the church of Thessalonica, and the church at Berea. These three churches were three of the poorest. And in fact, in all three of, well, in in the books of Philippians and in the books of Thessalonians, you never read anything about how the rich should handle money. The reason is because there were no rich there. They were poor themselves. There was no upper class whatsoever. They were all poor. Look what happened, though. In this severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, that doesn't make sense. Let's just break it down and think about it for a second. Actually, think about what we're looking at. Their abundance of joy with their extreme poverty overflows in a wealth of generosity. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. The Bible here never says that their abundance of joy with their extreme poverty overflowed and an astronomical amount of money. What it says is that it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You can be generous and have nothing. Because it has to do with the attitude of your heart. I've met met some poor people that were extremely generous. My, My dad... Now, he was not all that generous when I was growing up. You know, Dad, can I have this? No, son. You know, I wish he would have been more generous. But since then, my dad, who grew up one of one of ten in the mountains of East Tennessee, all they did was live off the land. I've told you before, they didn't even have store-bought toilet paper. You know, it was none of that. I mean, he was very poor. My dad today, my dad today is one of the most generous Men that I know still doesn't have a whole lot. He worked for over 38 years at Alcoa Aluminum, drove an hour one way to get there, worked double shifts and all sorts of things. He doesn't have a whole lot. But my dad today, ever so often, will get cards in the mail. My kids love that when they see a card in the mail from Tennessee. They're like, Papaw, you know, because Papaw is going to put some money in there. You know, my dad today, if he's out and he sees kids, particularly kids that look like they don't have much. First thing my dad does is reach back to his billfold and he pulls it out and he begins to pull out cash and he'll walk over to these little kids and he'll bend down to these kids. And I think it's because they remind him of him 
and he hands these kids money. He's generous. Even though he doesn't have a whole lot still, he's generous with what he has. Where does it come from? It comes from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Christ. See, their wealth of generosity, there was some money there, but it was not a lot of money. It came out of the abundance of joy. When the abundance of joy that has come from Christ crashes on the scene and mingles together with even extreme poverty, it comes out as wealth of generosity. And how many of us would say, well, the reason I don't give more is because you know, it takes everything I've got to live on. I just don't have much. Really? And I, and I get, I get that, that we're on budgets and many of you are on fixed incomes and I get that, that yes, it does take a lot to live. I understand. I understand what it is to, to live from paycheck to paycheck and all of that. But when... The joy of Christ has been deposited into the bank account of your heart. How much, how much joy does God have? It's infinite, right? You have an infinite bank account of joy. And when that crashes on the scene, even with whatever you have, it turns your heart into a wealth of generosity. I would ask you again to look at your heart. One more this morning. Generosity doesn't begin where you think it would. Generosity flourishes where you think it wouldn't, even in the midst of a severe affliction. But then third, generosity is more than you think it is. Generosity is more than you think. In verse 3, for they gave according to their means. Gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now, when we come to church and the pastor stands up and he begins to talk about giving, we all assume that he's going to eventually get to the place where he says, you need to tithe. And let's just move on. Tell me to tithe. Let's move on. The reality is it's more than that. The reality is. And we could spend a long time talking about this. The tithe is an Old Testament principle. And there's a whole lot more that was required of them than just a one-time tithe. But we are not under the Old Covenant of the Law. We are under the New Covenant of Grace. And I'm not simply going to say to you, we'll get into more of it next week, I'm not simply going to say to you, well, the law required 10%, we're under grace, God won't... won't, uh, won't he wouldn't expect less of you today under grace than he would under the law. I'm not, I'm not going to say just that. I want to say more to you next week about that. But I want you to see in this text, it is more than just the tithe. It says that they gave according to their means. This would point to that 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 principle that I read at the beginning. That he wanted them to every week, the first day of the week, take a collection, give something so that when he came, there would be nothing to have to be collected. And so there's this regular giving. This regular giving that is according to what you have. It's out of what you have. What this means is God doesn't want us to put a credit card machine in the narthex so that you can go out there and take your credit card and give money to the church at, you know, 400% interest. 
He's not asking you to finance your giving. He wants you to give according to what he has entrusted to you. He wants you to take it, take really off of the top and say, God, this is what you have entrusted to me. God, before I do anything else, God, I give to you as the giver of all good things, according to what he gives. But then he says here that they not only gave according to. But they also gave beyond their means. And if if you're there today and you're thinking that, well, all I got to do is the tithe. If you're sitting there in a self-righteous way saying, that's right, I tithe. I'm right before God. If that's your attitude. You are so wrong. You are not right before God based on anything other than the gospel. When you begin to feel self-righteous. Over the fact that you tithe, and probably most of these people in this room don't tithe, then you are adding to the gospel. The reality is, giving, the model here is that it is supposed to be regular according to our means, and then from time to time beyond our means. That it would be sacrificial, that it would hurt, that it would cause us to say, You know what? As a family, for the glory of God, we're going to do without this so that we can give here so that God's name and fame would go. Maybe that maybe that doesn't make sense. David Platt at the church at Brook Hills. I just thought of this. David Platt, church at Brook Hills, they've radically turned things around uh, as far as their budget and giving there. And one of the things they did was they removed I think it's goldfish or Cheez-Its or whatever out of out of their children's ministry. And he has people have just crucified him in the media. Even other pastors have crucified him saying this is legalistic. You're taking away. You're punishing the children. David's stance is we're not punishing the children. We are teaching the children that sometimes. The mission of the gospel in the world requires us to sacrifice some things that we might enjoy so that God would be worshipped everywhere. They gave according to their means. They gave beyond their means. And then he says this. Last thing is this. He says that they gave of their own accord. Of their own accord. You know, I've, I've seen churches. I've known churches where it is... It's, it's almost like it's not your own accord. You know, I mean, we've all heard stories of the pastor, you know, they count the offering in the beginning of the service. And if it's not enough, they lock the doors. You know, nobody's leaving because we didn't get enough. You know, aren't you glad I don't I don't do that? You know, you'd be out of here. You'd, you'd get caught in it one time and then you wouldn't come back. You know. Aren't you glad that there's no, you know, there's no sanctuary tax. There's no agents collecting. Nobody, you know, when when Ronnie comes forward and he has that offering plate and he he takes it back, he doesn't come to you. And stick it in in your face, you know, and when you you look at it, you say, uh, no, Ronnie doesn't say, you know, here, you know, he's not he's not, you know, reaching down and saying, guys, come here, help me. And they they don't pick you up, hold you down, take your wallet, take your money out and put it in the plate. You have the option You have the option to take what God has given you 
entrusted to you and willingly as an act of worship of your own accord, give according to your means and beyond your means as you would like. I'm not going to think more of you or less of you. In fact, I won't know. I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know. And it should be that way. Because it's an act of worship between you and your God. If we're going to be generous, we've got to understand that it doesn't start where we think it does. It flourishes where even we think that it wouldn't, even in this economy. And it's more than what we've thought maybe all these years that it was. Let's pray together.